Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with interesting folks about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. With the new President of the United States already signaling a recommitment to the Paris Climate Agreement, environmental issues are encouragingly back to the top of many design and manufacturing agendas. But for some companies, it always has been, as evidenced by the recently released Corporate Social Responsibility Report from HumanScale, one of the leading designers and manufacturers of high-performance workplace products with an aim of making a net positive impact on the earth and who signed a pledge back in 2017 to uphold the Paris Agreement. In this episode of Bevel, we chat with Jane Abernethy, Chief Sustainability Officer at HumanScale, and in our wide-ranging conversation, we touch on topics related to material and supply chain transparency, COVID's impact on furniture waste, and how the human element fits into the equation of responsible sustainability. All right, it's my pleasure today to have Jane Abernathy from Human Scale uh, joining me on the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. I wanted to, right out of the gate, uh, say uh, words of, uh, of praise about how much Human Scale has been doing, how much you, Bob King, and uh, all the other members of the team at Human Scale have been doing in terms of spearheading uh, such a comprehensive list of programs uh, that you have in terms of how to design and manufacture uh, workplace solutions that put uh, respect and regard for the planet and its resources right front and center. Um, and your, your overall aim to achieve net positive uh, environmental impacts. Um, I think that is absolutely fantastic. It's what puts human scale, I think, above uh, many other companies. Uh, a few of this, I'll just rhyme off some of the, the impressive list here. Uh, your global waste diversion rate, hit 86.9% in 2019. 84% of all your products have transparency labels, which is significantly higher than anyone else. You guys are one of the founding members of the Next Wave Initiative. Um, even some of the stuff you're doing at your plants, uh, rain use, uh, uh, rainwater reuse systems, solar panels, that sort of thing. But there's one in particular I want to talk a bit about. It has to do with the red list chemicals. Um, so for instance, Human scale has opted out of uh, uh, vinyl mm -hmm. and instead going with polyurethane for most of your products. You've completely eliminated Chrome 6 from your products. Here's what I want to kind of get a better sense of. Uh, these red list offenders, uh, these are the bad guys, so to speak. But my question is, are these bad guys that can be addressed in the uh, supply chain manufacturing uh, cycle, meaning are there ones that are out there and are being used, but just given the reality of the world, there's nothing that can be done about them. Essentially, they're, you know, they're, it would be good to have them on the red list, but they're essentially untouchable. Mm -hmm. Is that the way it is? Um, I would say not exactly, especially in North America. The red lists are, so the red list, which we reference, um, is commonly the ILFI, International Living Future Institute Red List. But there are a number of different authoritative lists that you could also look at. Um, you know, there's the California Prop 65 or the 
in Europe, you have the substance of very high concern list. Um, there, in Perkins and Will has the precautionary list. There's a number of different lists. They have a lot of commonalities, uh, but they overlap imperfectly. And some of that places where they don't overlap is partly to do where, where when the material scientists and you know, toxicologists and industrial hygienists and the folks who are kind of involved in pulling together the red list and deciding what should be on it, they may or may not agree 100% on every single um, topic or, or you know, sometimes they're reviewing the science and they see things slightly differently. Or perhaps they have slightly different values. Um, you might have some red list include all the reproductive toxins, carcinogens, mutagens, but may or may not include, say, asthmogens. So there, there are some slight differences among them. But one thing I've not usually seen is um, having the you know, toxicologists ask manufacturers, can you do this before they put it on a red list? It's usually looking, they're usually looking at the effect on, you know, the human body, the effect on the ecosystem, and, and then choosing those, you know, identifying those uh, red list ingredients, those chemicals of high concern. One sort of exception to that is in Europe, the, um, the program, the REACH program, with their substance of very high concern list, that does reach back to industry. And, and um, the way of regulating those substances of very high concern uh, is done with feedback from industry. Um, the substance does still end up on the list, but the, um, the way of regulating it is tempered a little bit. You'll also find that a little bit with, you know, there is that um, desire to get to the perfect state of having no chemicals of concern in your, our building or in our industries, um, and then an acknowledgement that we need to have some steps to get there. So there are, there are processes through which, say, the Living Future Institute would make exceptions um, to the red list, and you would see those showing up on declare labels highlighted in yellow because an exception has been made, but the, the um, chemical will still be on the red list, and there's quite a process to go through to try and get an exception made. Uh, you know, if the case is that the industry really cannot make that change, it'll still show up, and it might be for example, um, not penalized because it's impossible to um, make some of those exceptions. If I can go on for just a second longer, one example of that might be window shades. Certain code requirements require a certain level of flammability that can only be achieved with antimony, which is a red list ingredient. So then you have that manufacturer in that um, situation where they legally are required to put that chemical in, but it is a red list ingredient that will show up on in your in your international living future institute label red declare label but it'll um be yellow because it's not uh you know an exception is being made for that situation right so there's more than one list out there red list isn't the only one and mm -hmm. there's a lot of variables at play in terms of how certain chemicals get added to that list um or a list and Ideally, it would be great to have an across-the-board agreement in this industry about what those um, what those bad offenders should be, but that's not necessarily the case. If I could use a bit of a, a you know, cartoonish metaphor, um, if you were an assassin and you only had one bullet, which ingredient, and it doesn't have to be from the red list, from anything, um, in terms of like what's used in, in the manufacturing of, of your products, uh, which one would you uh, shoot? Meaning, which one is doing the most damage? If you could snap your fingers and get rid of it, which would it, which chemical would it be? In fact, if I if I could snap my fingers, it would probably not be a chemical. It might be more a mentality, <laughs> just continuing to do sort of business as usual, the thing we've always done. 
uh, things that we know and are familiar and are easy um, and not questioning what we're doing. I think it's really hard to pick out one type of chemical because um, there are so many different ways in which they can play out. Some are bad because they are so ubiquitous and they're just found everywhere. Um, some are really extremely toxic. I'm not sure which priority to pick there. Um, and some, you know, for example, build up in our bodies over time. And that, um, you know, can be quite harmful. And some are a lot more acute. Uh, so so it, it can be kind of complicated thinking of what's worse. You know, what are those trade-offs? They're always kind of hard to picture what all the different um, elements are that are in play at, at one time. Uh, so I think, to me, the, the hardest thing would be overcoming a mentality of just taking the easy way and doing what you're used to doing or not questioning, not asking for more information, not asking for the industry to step up. Yeah, I'm, I see what you're saying. But sometimes that's the biggest ask, isn't it? It's just yeah. To, yeah. to hope that people do a, a paradigm shift in, in their heads or in their business methodologies. Um, I, I mean, I, like, like I said, it's a bit of a cartoonish metaphor, but it's always useful, I think, to isolate a few mm -hmm. and zero in on those. Um, so if I can, as, as deep as possible, and I'll, this will come up a little later in our conversation, but I think it's, it's often kind of useful. Maybe if I change the metaphor and said, instead of an ingredient or a chemical, is there something within the manufacturing process or the supply chain process that you would put in the crosshairs if you could? Something you think that really, really needs immediate addressing. Um. One thing that comes to mind is um, single-use plastic, and this is not one particular chemical family class, and plastic is, in itself is not inherently toxic. Um, it encompasses a number of so many different materials, but it is just used so often without a lot of thought as to what's going to happen to it next. Um, and that's, again, some of them can be, some types of plastic can be um, very harmful to our own health and the ecosystem. And just the accumulation of material, I think is what we're seeing, um, is where some of the really big challenges are happening. And this is one thing where I, I do see you know, the, um, you know, as, as there, there's more renewable energy being used and there's sort of a push to use more renewable energy, a lot of the folks who work in the, the you know, petrochemical world would be shifting their their business models to creating and selling more plastic and we, we need a way to manage and deal with it. Again, it's not that all plastic is bad, it's just that we don't manage it well. And so um, it just ends up being everywhere and getting into a lot of places where it shouldn't be. So that I would say if we had attention around single-use plastic, plastic in general, but especially the single-use plastic, which um, just there's that much more volume of it. Right. I, in fact, isn't uh, one of the biggest problems with single-use plastic how it's used in packaging and uh, and shipping? Uh, uh, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Human Scale's been doing something in that direction as well, right? Have you eliminated um, uh, plastic in certain parts of your component shipping or your product shipping um, systems? Is that correct? Yeah, we've gotten it down to the very minimal amount that we need. So. So all, as much as possible, we use um, you know, cardboard, which is recyclable. Worst case, it doesn't get recycled, but it, it will biodegrade. Um, when we have, instead of styrofoam, we'll use the, these foamed uh, cornstarch 
um, material, which you can, you know, water will disintegrate it and then it can go into the ecosystem and be kind of feed the ecosystem the way the corn initially would have. Um, but there is still, we're still, it's an ongoing effort to remove the single use plastic. There are still um, surfaces that need to be protected. We've done ship tests to try not to use it. We've tried alternate materials. We've, over the last year, we've done a lot of testing on what other materials could be used. Um, and that's one thing where we're looking at, um, you know, different types of reusable, potentially providing like reusable bags or finding other ways where we can use not single use plastic. But it's, this one is not low hanging fruit. That's for sure. This one, I, I don't see a, a, there isn't an easy solution or even like a, a known solution that we, we have the option to just choose. It's been a lot of R&D to find a good solution and we're still working on it. Right. Keeping the conversation on uh, materials and material transparency for a minute, um, as anyone who has ever been to Neocon can attest, uh, there are a lot of companies out there doing commercial interior furniture um, and workplace uh, solutions. Human scale is, is one of them, but one of a fairly large pool. Um, and, you know, while a lot of what you guys are doing is uh, exceptional, it you know, for instance, like uh, uh, label transparency, you know, 84% of your products have them, despite HumanScale being one-tenth the size of some of the larger companies out there. Um, you know, also achieving uh, living product challenge certification across uh, multiple products, which not a lot of other companies are doing. So um, without sounding like too much of a pessimist, if I got to ask if you guys are the only ones doing it or, you know, like a very small portion of companies that are out there doing it. And the incentive just isn't really there for some, quite a few of the other companies in the same sector as you guys, it, you know, without, again, sounding pessimistic, it, are we making serious strides? You know, like what's it going to take to elevate the environmental uh, responsibility uh, of, of this entire industry? Yeah, this is a good question. And um, if it was, if our only focus was ourselves doing this particular thing, and that's as far as we looked, I think it, it would be kind of a pessimistic point of view. But the way I see it is that when we um, can do something like publish labels for transparency labels, good, well put together, very thorough, and this year there there be um, by the end, you know, the next couple of months, we'll see them all being third party verified. Um, so high quality data, transparency labels, we show that it can be done in achieving living product challenge. I mean, this is a high bar of sustainability. I think what it sends a signal is that this is possible to do. Um, you know, customers may have asked in the past for transparency and for material ingredients and been told that this is not possible, that supply chains won't allow it, that the industry isn't set up like that, all of the different reasons why you know, it can't be done, but then if human scale comes along and does it, it's, it shows it's possible it can be done. And that changes the conversation, whether we're in the room or not, it changes the conversation from, the, from that customer to all the other manufacturers as well to say, hey, if it can be done, then can you do this, please? And, and then start to actually ask for it. And it's interesting, we had initially published a lot of labels, um, and I think it, at the end of 20, December 2018, believe that was the right date, that we had around 30% of the labels published for the furniture industry. And we make up, I think, around 3% of the market. Like, not uh, we're not one of the major, major players in the entire furniture industry. We make up a small portion of the whole industry, right? And then 
and we we had published an outsized portion of the labels of transparency labels we've since then seen a number of other of our competitors start to publish labels as well there's now one of our competitors who has almost as many labels as we do and it's really been exciting to see that once we show it's possible it took a couple of years but you know i think we did we're able to influence some of those conversations so that people felt they could ask manufacturers for more. We show that that can be done, and then manufacturers often do step up once they're being asked to do that. Hmm. Okay, that's encouraging. Um, so we've been talking about materials. Uh, I wanna kind of step outside of that for a minute, uh, look a little bigger picture, a um, few links down the chain, so to speak, um, because we've been talking about how there needs to be improvements to the environmental effects of, uh, of materials or supply chains in the production of products, right? That's what the Red List uh, addresses, uh, some of the initiatives regarding the net positive impact, um, that kind of thing. But I wanna move now to uh, of the focus where once the product is out there, then what, right? And I want to sort of look at this from a, a circular economy perspective. And I'm curious what human scales perspective is in terms of its end of life end of product life scenarios. Um, a phrase I've heard a lot recently is F waste, which refers to furniture waste. Um, and I think this is very important now, given the obvious shift in uh, workplace environments. We'll get to that in a second, but I also remember you speaking on um, some other, I think it was a Neocon presentation last year, where you gave a, a story about how human scale tried at one point to stamp a phone number on the bottom of one of your chairs or one of your chair lines to encourage people to call you guys and if if it had come to the end of its its uh use and i think you said that you got like one person mm -hmm. one call in that initiative uh that's concerning a little bit i'm curious what is so back to my question what what how is human scale sort of addressing the the end of use scenario of furniture the f waste issue yeah so that that was kind of an interesting interaction and it made us take a step back and say clearly there's something we're not understanding here if we just say bring it back to us that you know clearly doesn't work and it, and when we stopped and looked at the whole situation for just a moment it, it seems kind of clear that when somebody is setting up a space they're reaching out to all the different manufacturers that they need to get those goods from coordinating with them, ordering the exact materials, you know, they're checking when everything is arriving, installers are setting everything up, it's all well coordinated. When someone is decommissioning a space, they don't have that same project plan in place to decommission the space, right? They're not reaching back to each individual manufacturer and coordinating everything, leaving the space in that, with that same intensity as you set up a space. So often spaces are just decommissioned and everything is removed. Um, kind of all at once when a you know, renovation has happened, it's just seen as goods that need to leave and not, there isn't that sort of level of attention as to when you're trying to receive those goods. And so one thing we found is that there often would be um, in a number of different municipalities, and we did a lot of research to make um, contacts and coordinate with a number of different groups who can deal with waste better. Um, and the priorities in, the, in those tends to be uh, to donate the material locally to not-for-profits. Second is to find a way to recycle that locally and every municipality will recycle different materials. Uh, third would be waste to energy and then sort of worst case, if there's anything left over, it would end up going to landfill. But at least you 
you know, have the least amount of material going to landfill as possible. So we found that there's um, a lot of folks who are decommissioning spaces um, may not be aware of who they could be working with and how they could set up their themselves to be dealing with their materials a lot in a lot more responsible way. So we've been actively trying to make those connections and, and support um, folks in decommissioning spaces as much as possible. It means we're not looking at our own product as an individual item uh, on its own. It now is part of a larger space and a whole sort of area that's being decommissioned or, you know, part of a, a whole system. But I think that that does have to be the approach. It doesn't, it seems like it doesn't work to deal with each individual item and each manufacturer trying to deal with their own in individual items it doesn't seem to um, work in practice. We found this to be a lot more effective in, in diverting more material from, from landfill if we don't focus on exclusively our own material, but the whole space. Right. Well, I mean, you're using the phrase decommissioning space, and I think that is being done right now in ways that uh, no one saw coming. The speed at which it has to be done is uh, problematic, to say the least. For instance, like, let's just let's just be honest, you know, with offices closing um, across the country or downsizing because of, uh, you know, COVID restrictions and, and now a significant shift to working from home, uh, there's I think there should be a growing concern about how much uh, leftover office furniture there's going to be and probably being sent to landfill, uh, which obviously is not just uh, financial cost, but environmental cost. This, this, you know, what COVID is doing to the workspace. In fact, I read a report just recently. I think Altus Group came out with, uh, with one talking about they have at a conservative estimate of 15 to 20%, but I've been hearing even higher the amount of office space that is going to be shifted, uh, basically closed, because that's the percentage of uh, workforce now shifting to a work from home uh, environment or some some hybrid thereof. That's a big number. Um, and I'm wondering, like, what, how, if at all, uh, human scales adjusting to that shift, because the, sort of the part of the older uh, methodology let's just let's just say for instance an office is 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 built and they order x number of products x number of chairs let's say task chairs from you guys you ship them in uh the most efficient you know a very environmentally friendly way you know bulk packaging with uh, uh materials or, or some kind of wrapped in blankets uh, wrapping or whatever yeah. yeah exactly that you then recollect at the end all that kind of thing well, that's very hard to do if a company is now going to say, okay, well, we're still buying 50 task chairs, but they're being sent to 50 different locations. All of these are private residences, mm -hmm. right? I have this vision in my head as that is one pot potential um, step in the process for the foreseeable future. How does human scale uh, look at that landscape? How do, like, is there, is there talk at this point about what is, what are we going to do? Not just with the, downsizing of office spaces but a shift to a work from home methodology yeah so for downsizing of office spaces i've been hearing from clients you may be more on the forefront of this conversation and more aware of this than i am but i've been hearing from clients um that people are downsizing how many people are in the space that more folks that were working from home or alternate days but i haven't been hearing of people yet getting rid of furniture that they already have partly because it's still so uncertain that who knows what happens in one year from now, maybe you will still need it. That if there's, there's a sense of, there's, a, there's still, it seems to me enough uncertainty that people are not 
making drastic decisions to get rid of furniture um, yet. And I, and I would, you know, we'll see how it plays out with the vaccine and kind of what happens over the next year and a half or two years. It, it, you know, things may be quite different um, at that point. So, and again, I'm open to hearing if you've been hearing something very different from that, but that, that's, I have certain, I haven't been hearing that from clients yet that they're actually getting rid of furniture. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, there's, we're so early days right now. Like it's, we're not even a full year mm-hmm. uh, into lockdown, quote unquote lockdown phase here in Canada. Um, so yeah, a lot of people are still trying to, it, it's like trying to find your way in a dark room, you know, they're just, their hands are out in front of them or trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, a lot of employees were said, okay, take all your stuff home with you. Mm-hmm. So theoretically they have that material. Um, and it, it didn't fall to the, to the manufacturer, to the provider to figure out a way to take care of those issues of transportation or whatever. But a lot of what I'm hearing from sort of the longer vision uh, commentators is that it's not just a hold your breath, wait for everyone to get vaccinated, and then there's going to be a rush back mm-hmm. to the office. There is a significant change in the expectation of how the office paradigm will work. Mm-hmm. Now, there's debates about you know shifting the office space to be uh, like a trophy office or a communal office where it's not like everyone's working there every day, but they come there to socialize, do planning or whatever. Uh, there's other there's other types of offices being proposed. I'm seeing a lot of companies, they send me, uh, you know, sketches and renderings and stuff about what they think it could be like. No way to know for sure. But it, the, a, a common refrain is this, there is a change mm-hmm. and it's going to have an impact. Um, and I just think, you know, how the old uh, stocking of uh, workplace solution furniture uh, is, isn't going to work in terms of sending it to one location. If you now have a whole bunch of people saying, okay, well, I do want a workspace ish uh, setup in my home, mm-hmm. um, but I only need, you know, one chair or something like that. Uh, what happens three years, four years down the road, once that be- has become kind of common practice, uh, I, you know, I, I acknowledge like these are sort of speculative conversations, but uh, I have snuck into a few office spaces here in Toronto where it literally looks like uh, everyone's packed up and headed for the hills and there's chairs and uh, cubicle material, uh, you know, walls and stuff just sitting there. Someone's got to do something about it. Right. Yeah. I think that that that's exactly what I'm seeing too and hearing about too, is that the, the furniture is still there. It's just that people are sitting in every second desk or, or however they've had their rules sort of set out for them. Um, and, and they, I, my get the sense they don't quite know what they're going to do about the space yet. And, and, as you mentioned, the office in the next few years could be a very different thing. And it, it, I think that one thing you highlight with the, um, if people are working from home and in ordering in a more individual way than, they, than when you're setting up an entire office, that could end up being more packaging that would be delivered and, and more packaging for protecting products. Of course, if you deliver a broken product that doesn't work, then it's immediately going to, to waste and all and all of that is the you know waste of resources which is very unsustainable so you do have to protect the product enough that it arrives intact um, but that is a definitely a challenge it's what we've been talking about with our operations team of um, you know how do you make sure you have the right sizes of boxes that are not you know much larger than they need to be and or much you know that they have enough protection but it's not 
overkill and you know you, you have it, it's it does take a bit of a balancing act and i think that's one thing that that could end up being more impactful i, I do think this has been an issue with COVID across the board too with not just office furniture but we now order a lot more things to be delivered to our homes with stores being closed, exactly it does end up being a lot yeah. of uh especially cardboard and some of that filler plastic Exactly. That's that's part of what is is prompting this question for me because I'm seeing a lot of articles that you that have very distressing uh, photo spreads of an, a street on garbage day where there's so much Amazon mm. cardboard, right? Card, uh, cardboard packaging with the Amazon logo stacked up beside the recycle bin because it's clear that there's just they, it's overflowing, mm. and that the entire street is like that sort of thing. And I'm thinking. Okay, but this is just people ordering like, you know, home supplies or whatever, uh, or their HelloFresh, uh, you know, me meal boxes or whatever. What happens now if they're like, okay, I'm staying home permanently, I'm going to be working from home, and I need to be buying office furniture from, you know, human scale from, hopefully, hopefully, you know, hopefully, like, or, or I don't know. That's maybe someone even might order some carpet from Interface. I don't know, but hopefully they'll be picking conscientious companies. But what happens if they start picking furniture from Staples that doesn't give a well? I should watch how I criticize them, I guess. But uh, you know, let's just say further down the uh, conscientious ladder, some of the companies that have no problem uh, shipping you a chair in a box that's filled with uh, popcorn styrofoam, for instance, like some of the worst offenders out there. That's, I don't think this is a problem that's going to go away. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, I think you're right, it's not a problem that's going to go away. Um, one thing I did find a little bit heartening is that we've had a couple of, uh, a number of different companies we've worked with who are clients of ours in their office space. And then we've set up like work from home, um, sort of, they may have set up their own work from home sites where their, their employees can choose specific um, items that they either they will get a huge discount on or maybe that that their, their company they work for might um, allow them to purchase through, a, you know, have a certain budget for them to purchase home from, work from home materials. And from there we have, you know, so we can see our, our smart ocean chair sitting alongside a number of other chair options. Um, and I'm, I was really happy to see that our smart ocean really outsells the other chairs um, by a significant margin, which is, which is quite um, exciting to see because it's a lot of individuals making a decision. And, you know, so that's nice to see that, when individuals are in control of their own decisions, sometimes they might, that might align with their priorities. The other thing that comes to mind is that people might not be thinking about the material ingredients, kind of wrapping this back up to that initial part of the conversation, is when you think about the, the ingredients going into the products that then go into your home, and you know that the materials may have been intended to stay in that desk or that chair, but of course there's wear and tear and things, you know, as they wear, it becomes particles that are dust and then he, get in the air and you know we ingest them and they they do affect our health eventually so i think when something is going into our home there it might be that we would pay more attention to the ingredient we, we might care a bit more about what ingredients are being used to make it and might really want to have something that doesn't have toxins in it going into our home that we're going to be around all the time yeah no, I agree. I think that level of awareness could be a very useful tool. I think people will be much more concerned about what they bring into their home because it's their home. There's always this sort of mental schism between while well, the workplace is the workplace and keeping that environment safe is someone else's responsibility mm -hmm. to stay on top of. 
but they, you know, people take much deeper ownership, obviously, of the spaces within their own home. And that might translate well to a little more uh, self-awareness and uh, sort of transmitting that onto the uh, purchase or acquisition of, uh, uh, you know, workspace solution, quote unquote, workspace solutions that are now modified for the home environment. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's, I think that's a fairly positive note to sort of um, keep an eye on. Um, while I have you, I want to switch tone a little bit here. Uh, sort of my last question, and it's a, it's a bigger question. It's, a, it's actually a fairly large question. Um, and so far we've been talking about materials, but uh, sort of let's call it the material transparency uh, issue. But now I'm going to switch that, call it the human transparency issue. And I think, uh, you know, human scale is, is ideal for that to have this conversation because it's built right into uh, one of your one of your slogans design for humans hashtag design for humans um, so bear with me because it's going to take me a minute to sort of work through this this question but it stems from something I've been seeing recently and it has to do with uh, I've been on the receiving end of more than a few reports coming from different uh, agencies or advocacy groups or whatever um, that are taking a deep, hard look at um, issues that have to do with, uh, how would I, it's hard, it's hard to try and put a single name on it, but um, basically it has to do with uh, labor, labor rights and exploitation, which in, within human, uh, or within the labor uh within particularly construction labor or the built environment labor structure. Um, a lot of these reports that are now entering sort of the, the literature stream are focusing mainly on uh, migrant workers or forced labor that has to do with construction sites and infrastructure projects. And they're obviously looking beyond just um, like they're not, it, it's not so much a North American issue as it is a broader global issue, but they are also raising some very interesting questions that have to do with the uh, material and goods um, side of the, of the equation. They are looking uh, quite a bit at issues that have to do with uh, uh, construction materials, like for instance, aggregates, timber, um, natural stone, metals, basically things extracted from the earth, but they're also looking at manufactured goods. Uh, it's hard to get into that side of things and they admit it, but they're bringing it to the surface and it's an important conversation. They're talking a lot about um, sort of larger scale. Again, they seem to focus on the construction site topic, but uh, issues like heating parts, um, exterior panels, PPE equipment, those types of things. And these are all elements within the supply chain and they are basically drawing attention to uh, some larger scale problems. Um, and one of those has to do with the fact of, uh, you know, that within the built environment structure, there are a uh, few key contractors at the top and, but underneath them, they can have dozens of different uh, relationships between subcontractors, material providers, uh, labor agencies, Right. And all of these have fairly complex interrelationships. And there's an unfortunate reality that they can only look a couple degrees below them uh, in terms of vetting, um, vetting these chains before it becomes very murky. Mm -hmm. 
very difficult to keep an eye on how things are done. So that, uh, as, as broad as that is, when I'm reading these reports, I can't help but find some concerning um, logical parallels that can be applied to the uh, interior product side of things, um, having to do with, again, material supply chains, but how that relates to, to labor. Um, and to be honest, I have to be completely honest here. One of the things that popped this to the front of my, uh, or to the top of my uh, sort of observational list is a, a one pager I actually got from human scale. Uh, it was called global impact of material transparency. And it was a one pager and there were two images on that. One has to do, one showed uh, untreated waste being dumped into a river in Bangladesh. But the other image shows a guy, shows a man standing in a pit. And what I presume is this is probably a picture from a tannery. Um, and it talks, the cut line talks about, uh, it says man standing in toxic water containing chromium sulfide concentrations. And so it's drawing attention to um, the chemical side of things. But I'm looking at this picture thinking, this guy standing in this pit, this is a labor issue too. And I'm thinking, okay, so much of what I just described and has been brought out in these reports about uh, the problems with uh, ethical labor and stuff like that, there has to be a logical correlation to how materials are created and then, uh, you know, used to build products, to build chairs, um, other stuff like that. So again, forgive me for that long winded preamble, but I'm wondering, is any of this showing up on human skills radar as an issue that needs focus? I assume that obviously the question is yes, but this is a very convoluted problem because on a global scale, it's hard to get more than a few degrees into the chain before so many problems arise in terms of the, the murkiness of, of unpacking who's doing what, where sort mm -hmm. of thing. Does, do you see what I'm saying with that? <laughs> I'm very familiar with that. Yes. So first I want to thank you for asking the question because that starts the dialogue and um, keeps the dialogue going. It keep brings it to um, the surface and it highlights the importance of what's happening in supply chains, not just the first year supplier, not just ourselves and our own employees, but deeper into supply chains. And I, I agree that it is really difficult to know what's happening in your second, third, fourth tier suppliers. Once you get deeper into the supply chain, it's really hard to find out what's happening. Um, what I see is that I this same situation was kind of the situation with material ingredients five years ago, it was really hard to do. There were a lot of frameworks that didn't exist yet. So any company trying to disclose materials had to figure out every step themselves. And over the last number of years, there's now the HPD Collaborative has brought out you know, a framework for disclosing ingredients. There are declare labels. There are a lot of things in place that make it more possible for manufacturers to, who want to step up and do this to do the work instead of spending their time figuring out how to do it. Um, I see that this conversation around the supply chain and the social impact of supply chains um, is you know, in that going in that same direction and that needs a lot of work to get to the point where we can really understand what are in our supply chains, what's happening, you know, deeper than just our first tier suppliers, the first tier being the folks that we directly purchase from. Um, at HumanScale, we audit our first tier suppliers in person and we do 
look for and, and audit to social impacts as well. Um, but but at the moment we've been limited to our first year supplier and during COVID we've been, it's been impossible to visit any suppliers. So I see there's really room for a lot of improvement in this area and I, I think this is something that we need to keep bringing to light so that we can start to see the industry stepping up, we can start to create these frameworks that are needed to evaluate and understand and then improve the social impact of manufacturing. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com, where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, listeners, keep designing.